The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Uh, great to have you with us and great uh, to have my co-hosts, Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. With the passing of Charlie Munger, um, a hero and idol to so many of us, uh, we will uh, dedicate this episode to Charlie, uh, the man and the legacy. And hopefully we have some, uh, you know, interesting personal uh, insights and, and lessons to share with you all. So, Phil, uh, over to you to get us started, please. Yeah, thanks, John. So I think uh, on, we're recording this on Thursday, November 30th. When when the news broke on Tuesday about Charlie's passing, I happened to be sitting in front of my computer when, uh, you know, the ominous red headline starts flashing on Bloomberg. And of course, it caught my eye with the, the name. And I just kind of saw the news and sat there for a minute to, minute to digest what you know cannot be reasonably described as a shock for someone who is approaching 100 years old but still came as a shock somehow you know it's just um it was it was tough to sit there and and process that for a minute and so it, it's funny i the first thing i thought to do was you know i texted you guys you know i don't know why that just felt like a natural reaction. And I called a couple of my other friends that uh, I talk to regularly that I kind of think of as having the same impact on my life that, uh, that he had uh, with Buffett and, and, you know, they hadn't seen the news yet. So we just kind of sat there for a minute and what is there to say? Right. I mean, it was a, uh, it was a great life, well-lived, a long life, well-lived. And uh, it was funny too, because as the day went on, I probably had five or six different people all text me both to like say, Hey, did you see the news? And to like pass along condolences, even though I'd only met him once kind of in passing and, and certainly didn't have a personal relationship with him, but you know, people were kind of passing along their condolences in a sense to me because they knew how much I genuinely admired him and, and how grateful I was for all the lessons that, that he had taught. So um, I thought that was really funny. I mean, everybody from my neighbor across the street to my mom to uh, people I haven't really talked to that much in the last you know year or so uh, reached out, and I think that kind of speaks to the legacy um, that that he leaves behind. And I think he one thing that stuck out to me as I was reading the obituaries uh, that came out um, was that. Jason Zweig some years ago, I think four or five years ago, I asked him, I said, I wouldn't normally ask this to someone, but what would you like the first line of your obituary to be? 
And Munger took it in stride, of course, and replied that you basically have a duty to be rational, a moral duty to be rational and to be a reasonable human being. And I can certainly say that that's a fitting first line of his obituary, right? I mean, I think that was one of the things that he always did and struck me that that stood out over over the many years. The other thing that that kind of stood out that that I think about all the time. I mean, obviously, there's tons of little sound bites that we've all taken as part of the the catechism over the years. You know, invert always invert to find your problems. Fish where the fish are, all that kind of good stuff that that we all that we all take in our day to day lives. But you know, the one thing that I think about on a more intangible but personal level is you know, in thinking about his life, he always talks about how he's a biography nut. And I like to read biographies too. And I think about his own biography, you know, he actually overcame a whole lot more adversity, um, certainly than I have. I mean, I, I've had my fair share of lumps in life, and I'm sure most of us could put ourselves at least in that category. And and some people could certainly say they've had far more trauma and adversity in their lives. But, you know, he, he never got to finish college because of World War II. He he married young as as most people did, but then in an era when divorce was very uncommon, in his late twenties and early thirties, he found himself divorced. You know, as a as a single divorced parent of three in the nineteen fifties in Los Angeles was actually not a very common thing, and he was basically dead broke. Um, and and then to top it all off, his 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 only son, who was nine years old at the time slowly died of leukemia. And uh, I've always thought about how losing a child like that would probably be about the most painful thing a person could go through. And it, it obviously still got to him. I think he got choked up quite a bit, even in, in his 90s, you know, thinking back to that, even though he went on to have a very, uh, a large family and, a, and a, by all accounts, a happy and, and healthy and successful family life. Um, but, you know, I think about that when I've had setbacks or troubles or whatever and think like, you know, okay, if somebody like that at, at 30, 35 can be divorced, dead broke, miserable, and lost a son at age, age nine to a horrible, incurable illness, like I, I certainly don't have anything to complain about. And that was another thing that just sort of stood out that I was appreciated. It was just absolutely zero self-pity. You know, he later lost an eye and was, you know, functionally half blind and, and, and almost entirely blind late in his life for someone who loved to read as much as he did. And you never once heard a, a word of complaint or any self-pity in any regard. And that's something I always tried to to carry in in the back of my mind for sure. And and just it it requires kind of constant vigilance to avoid sliding down that slope sometimes. And so I know this is all kind of, you know, it's going to induce some eye rolls and some people are going to just you know, oh, great, here's another, you know, person shouting into the void, paying tribute to Charlie Munger. But I thought we just kind of had to spend a few moments reflecting on someone that we all admired and uh, and share some thoughts in light of that. So I'll stop there and, and let open it up to you guys. Yeah, Phil, I totally agree. Like, forget about the haters. It's, it's worth doing. Munger's an amazing man, an amazing life. And I had saved his quote on self-pity for the last thing I was going to say, but I'm going to start with it because... I think it's really powerful. You know, he, I think, like you said, it's appropriate framing. He lived an amazing life, right? A lot of people are going to focus on rest in peace, but the life was amazing, but it was not easy. Um, and yet, you know, his outlook, I think, was as 
you know, he was a curmudgeon, obviously, as, as Buffett has told us, uh, the, the curmudgeon, curmudgeon at times, but like uh, just an amazing outlook on life. And I think this quote is, generally speaking, envy, resentment, revenge, and self-pity are disastrous modes of thought. Self-pity gets fairly close to paranoia, and paranoia is one of the very hardest things to reverse. You do not want to drift into self-pity. Self-pity will not improve the situation. And I think that's something important for everyone to think about. And I think that gets to his approach to compounding things in life. Um, And you focus on where you can grow and where you can move forward and always looking ahead. Um, And I I think that's pretty constructive. And one of the great things that we could take out of, uh, take away from, from this great man. Um, I was first introduced to Charlie Munger by a mentor. I'd heard, uh, you know, I'd, I I was introduced to Buffett and knew of Berkshire Hathaway at a very young age. I'd never known who Munger was until much, much later. And it was when I had gone from finishing law school, thinking about starting a job that was more directly connected to law and hard pivoting into uh, investing. And a mentor sent me a link to this talk called The Art of Stock Picking. And, you know, I was too dumb at the time to realize what he was trying to tell me was that this stuff is really freaking hard. Um, You know, that was why he sent it to me, because Munger points it out, you know, in his own eloquent way during that talk. But I instantly took to Munger. And my mentor didn't even tell me at first that this was, um, you know, a lawyer who turned to investing, though I'm not sure if that was coincidence or not. I think that was maybe just, you know, kind of one of those universal uh, coincidences. But I instantly took to concepts like mental models, building your lattice work of mental models, multidisciplinary thinking, which I think was something, you know, I took to the so all the things that I thought I was bringing to the table, not the things that were telling me this was really hard. Uh, but this idea of multidisciplinary thinking, I was like, I was made to do this. Um, this notion of probabilistic thinking that that he spoke about during during that talk was, was fairly new to, to me. Um, I hadn't come from that world. And, you know, I, I mean, I'd been playing a lot of poker. So I was like, yeah, this all makes sense to me. I could pull it all together. Um, and so I started Googling more and the next thing I read was practical thought about practical thought. Um, and I'd never heard of this concept of inversion, this idea of invert, always invert. And this whole, uh, if you're not familiar with the talk, it's where Munger effectively talks about how you'd build Coca-Cola, uh, in reverse. Um, and I was just floored by the idea and how he narrated the Coke story through it all. Um, and I don't know if it was exactly after that is the next one, but the next one that really stood out to me that I'd been introduced to was the psychology of human misjudgment. Uh, and, and I love this idea of social proof. And I think it explains so much of what we see in our world. Um, the whole idea of being rational. I was so glad you mentioned that Phil, like that's our responsibility. Um, so there's so many specific points that I take to, but, um, those were like the three things the, the early on. Um, and then I just like literally read everything I could about and by Munger and, and was like, how'd I not know who he was earlier? And, um, one of my biggest regrets is that, uh, you know, before COVID I was supposed to go to Omaha for one of the, uh, it was going to be in, in May of 2020 for the Berkshire AGM. And I never 
actually did get there with both Warren and Charlie together mm-hmm. uh, on stage. And, you know, I my window's obviously shut now, and, and it's something that I'll regret because um, the influence on me has been been strong, both as a person and uh, as an investor. And I feel like, um, you know, I, I feel like I, I, I've pocketed a lot, though. I've, I've learned a lot from Charlie, and it it's like a hundred years, basically, but um, yeah. still feels too soon. Yeah, I'm glad you you brought up the psychology of human misjudgment. It was on my list of things to mention too, because on the off chance that there's even one person listening to this who probably stumbled into the wrong podcast searching for something else. But if there's one person listening who hasn't read the transcript of that talk or listened to that talk, you know, it's available on YouTube. There's podcasts that have reproduced it in at full length and then there's plenty of written transcripts out there. I think it's probably one of the ten or twenty most useful things I've ever uh, read or listened to, and it's something I've gone back and reread and re-listened to, you know, it's certainly more than a dozen times, probably more than twenty times, and uh, it's shocking to me how ahead of its time it was because I believe it was delivered at Harvard in 1994. I want to say somewhere around there, and it was literally years, if not decades, ahead of some of the major advancements that are now taken. Uh, as kind of the core and foundation of behavioral economics. And, you know, that was the first thing he said. Well, if economics isn't behavioral, what the hell is it? But at the time, that was not how most of the world viewed it. And it's just an amazing blueprint for how an entire very important field, if you're at all involved in anything related to business, politics, organized groups of human beings, it's something you need to learn and understand. And it's just an absolute masterwork. And of course, it's included... In Port Charlie's Almanac, too, which, again, I was uh, actually talking to a few people about it who reached out that uh, knew of Charlie Munger and knew of my admiration, but didn't necessarily know much about him. And I recommended that as a, as a great resource. And uh, funny enough, I guess, um, you know, it's it's really kind of heartbreaking. But Becky Quick from CNBC was out in uh, L.A. interviewing Charlie just a couple of weeks ago. Um and they were preparing one kind of a longer form interview that was going to air in parts around his 100th birthday, which was coming up in uh, just a few weeks on January 1st. He was also preparing a big party for them that, that I know he mentioned he was looking forward to. But apparently there's also a revised edition of Poor Charlie's Almanac, which I believe she said is due to be released on December 5th. So next week. Um, so that's something for everybody to look forward to, because I'm sure... If there's any new material at all or any updated thoughts or or anything, or it's just a collector's edition or whatever you it might be, it'll be worth uh, checking out for sure. Yeah, I mean, you guys uh, mentioned the psychology of human misjudgment talk. I think it's um, basically fair to say that if you just had taken that talk, wrapped some economic uh you know language around that, you uh, stood to get a Nobel Prize. I mean, yeah, for sure. you know, basically, um, you could have really built um, a whole career around just taking that talk and expanding on it and adding, you know, the the just the way economists, um, you know, um, take these things and uh, run experiments and so forth. Um, I think that's one thing. I, an, another really huge legacy of of Munger, uh, in my view, is uh, what Buffett has talked about. You know, he's basically credited Munger with moving him from uh, the deep value Ben Graham approach to more of a quality approach. And, um, you know, it's 
we will never know uh, what would have happened to Buffett and, and Berkshire uh, without that influence by Munger. Um, and, you know, I also um, would echo um, the, the sentiments on rationality. I think for me, that is maybe one of the biggest takeaways and what I'm trying to implement in my own life. Um, also, the lattice work of mental models, um, you know, at MOI, we've uh, kind of um, use the lattice work uh, brand or name for uh, our biggest uh, event of the year in New York. And, uh, you know, that's, that's uh, basically paying homage to to Munger and uh, the idea of uh, interdisciplinary uh, insights and wisdom. Um, I think also the fact, uh, you know, that he's talked so much about uh, reading and reading broadly as being the key to uh, wisdom, to worldly wisdom. So uh, I think, you know, his impact is just enormous on um, on all of us. And I think also on some that may have never heard his name, but they've, um, you know, that 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 wisdom has uh, has kind of uh, gone uh, very broadly. Yeah, I think it has gone pretty broadly. And that was another thing I found so interesting about people's reaction to the news of his passing over the past couple of days was you got a couple of, I, I had put it into like three categories. There are the people who kind of knew what he was all about and and, and kind of knew the story. Then there were the people that had kind of heard of him, like you just said, um, and that kind of branched one of two ways, like people who were curious about like, okay, well, what was the deal? And then there were people who were very dismissive of like, oh, here's just another like rich white billionaire who must have done something wrong. Like you, you seem to get that reaction a lot. And I think that's what kind of disturbs me about it was if you really dig into it, the lessons, like, I think that's what I'll miss most is like, I actually don't know. I mean, Buffett obviously himself, but like who's well equipped to take the torch of kind of moral compass and, and run with it. Like who's going to care enough to write op-eds and give unpaid for talks um and 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 play the role i mean yeah he was a curmudgeon sure but he was in in my opinion a very good-natured curmudgeon and was not out you know buying you know yachts and and rocket launches for himself and all this kind of self-indulgent stuff i mean he was an enormous philanthropist and he was doing things his own way and i it, but at the same time he was like kind of that you know fatherly grandfatherly figure that everyone wishes that they have in their life. And I don't know who an American or business life more broadly is well positioned to, to take that on, unfortunately. I mean, I think that's like a real loss that we're all feeling right now. Yeah, that's a great point. It's really hard to imagine who fills in those shoes. There's no like elder statesman, and it's certainly not from the investment world. I think most people uh, in investing don't, I mean, I mean, not I think, like people don't make it very long in investing. There are not many people who have like 20 plus year track records, let alone 50 plus years. And it's amazing to reflect on like the returns of the Munger partnership. I was looking those up after, uh, I had like been roughly familiar. I'd seen them in the past, but I was like, you know, let me, let me see what those were again after, um, just going down a, a Munger wormhole the last few days. Uh, and his returns were phenomenal. And then the early 70s hit. And it's yeah. like two straight years of down over 31% Yep. Um, before a rip-roaring comeback in 1975. And that was like, I think the when when the partnership uh, wound yeah. down. And he, he yeah, that's went, when he shut the doors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah something that stuck with me. It's funny you should mention that. I'm sorry to interrupt, but like I remember very distinctly, <laughs> I didn't have quite that kind of drawdown ever, thankfully. But I, I remember feeling, you know, kind of down in the dumps about a, a period of underperformance, and remember him thinking that, or him saying that at the time in 1973, 74, when he was having this huge, massive drawdown, which coincided with the bust of the the Nifty Fifty and just a vicious bear market in the early 70s there, and him saying that you know he didn't mind it because he knew that he'd done the right thing and he knew that he'd avoided all the nonsense and he knew that his investments would rebound and he knew that everything would be fine. But he also knew that his partners could, by definition, not feel the same degree of confidence and that they were going through, through some real agony while they thought they might be watching a huge chunk of their money evaporate. And he just felt tortured by that feeling that like, gosh, am I, am I letting you know, my, my trusted partners down. And I, it kind of made me feel better in a way. Cause I'm like, well, if even he felt that way, then it's natural that we all feel that way. And, and, and yeah, you wonder too, how much it weighed on him because then, you know, sure enough, a year or two later, he, uh, you know, he, he joined Berkshire as vice chairman and had lots of other things going on, but I wonder how much that weighed on his decision to close the partnership. So, sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to. No worries. Yeah. Great point. And I don't think anyone could do that today. And I think, you know, Phil, I'm surprised you didn't say, show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. on this podcast. But I think that's part of like the nature of the incentive structure in the industry is to like control yourself for volatility. And Munger never would nor could possibly think that way. It was right. always like, what is the best, most right, rational thing to do from here? which I think is pretty amazing. And John, I'm glad you mentioned like the influence on Buffett. Like we, it's funny, we went through two of us without saying as much, but like this whole notion of the evolution from uh, puffs at the, you know, the last two puffs on a cigar, but to uh, finding quality businesses that you could hold on forever. I mean, that's something that is in the pantheon of investing today. Um, And yet, you know, without Munger, it might not be as popular nor as uh, prevalent as as it otherwise would be. Um, and for sure, I I feel like Richard Thaler did win that Nobel that that could have happened. Danny um, Kahneman too, right? I mean, you know, it's it's absolutely without a, it's without a doubt. And you know, it's funny you mentioned the the comment about. Yeah, I mean, it goes without saying. I mean, it's worth reiterating, but it's just so obvious at this point that Berkshire would have never been what it is uh, without his influence. I mean, Buffett is enormously capable and, and by Munger's own admission was the more capable of the two in terms of running and 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 being Berkshire itself. But it would have never been what it is without Munger's influence. And one of the things that somebody asked him recently, again, I think it was from the same Jason Zweiger interview a few years ago, was, you know, how have things changed? How are things different? What would you do differently if you're starting over today? And he basically said things were way, way easier back then because there were all these cheap assets with kind of spring-loaded, you know, results just kind of waiting to happen. Lots of excess value below the price that you were having to pay. And you could just kind of wait until the price more accurately reflected reflected reality and then move on. But he, being is hyper- smart and rational as he was, noticed that things were going to start changing. And sure enough, you know, was very early again, years and decades ahead of his time and saying that, you know, that, that you need to buy quality, you need to buy good businesses at reasonable prices. And that's a better long-term strategy, particularly as you start working with bigger sums of money, as opposed to just buying bargains and rinse and repeat. And uh, yeah, it can't be stated enough. Again, I think Buffett would have figured that out. 
Um, you know, likewise, somebody asked him, you know, how much credit he Munger should really take. And he said, look, even Einstein needed somebody to talk to. He really <laughs> thought that his his role was was giving Buffett a sounding board and and being somebody to listen to. Um, and, you know, it just strikes me again how desperately everybody needs that in life, whether you're Einstein or Buffett or a mere mortal. And, you know, I, there was a hilarious quote that that as I was going back down the rabbit hole, it was I was in the room uh, when it happened. It was at the Daily Journal meeting in I want to say 2016 or 17. And somebody asked him, I may have actually been in the kind of the after scrum of the meeting and and said, you know, Charlie, you've said, and I think about it a lot, that you want to hire the guy whose IQ is 130 but thinks it's 120 because the guy whose IQ is 150 but thinks it's 170 will kill you. And without missing a beat, Charlie said, you must be thinking of Elon Musk. And everybody starts cracking <laughs> up, right? Because, And then, you know, it coincided with that bizarre outburst yesterday by Elon Musk at the at the New York Times Dealbook Conference. And I just remember thinking about it, obviously, because Charlie was top of mind, um, that if Monk, if Elon Musk had someone even a tiny fraction as capable as Charlie Munger, who could act as his number two to kind of keep him reined in, to be a sounding board, to be a trusted confidant, to be a true partner, it, he would be so, so, so much better. And I think that's true of almost everybody, whether it's a big time, high profile CEO, an everyday business person, a friend, you know, any aspect of life, I think it's just absolutely invaluable. And when you can find somebody who plays that role, you should hang on for dear life. Yeah, a lot of people think about investing as a solitary endeavor and will point to Buffett without even acknowledging Munger right, right. and yep, his exactly. role there. It's not a solitary endeavor. Like you need a you need a community around you, you need a sounding board, you need someone, I don't know, to at times be the devil and at times be the angel on your shoulder because it is an up and down ride. It is a roller coaster and um, it, it helps keep you grounded to have a parallel presence, someone like consistently there that you could consistently talk to. I, I don't really know anyone in this business, even people who are doing it, pursuing it as like a sole individual firm who would view it as a, a, a as a solitary endeavor. No, that's been me, and I certainly don't. I mean, there's there's a couple of people, and they know who they are. Without whom, you know, I call them sometimes multiple times a day, but certainly multiple times a week. And if I hadn't been, I would have A, been less effective and B, probably lost my mind by now. <laughs> right. And so, you know, it's like such a critical um, lesson that a lot of people could take from both Buffett and Munger uh, that I think is very often ignored. Um, and I want to talk about like one of the specific things that I that I really liked on how Buffett defined their investing in in the art of stock picking, and he used this analogy of like there are a lot of people out there, and I think he gave that talk. It was like in 1996, maybe like as the internet bubble was getting going. He's like, there are a lot of people out there investing, like surfing on trends was the phrase he used, or surfing, uh, where you mm -hmm. kind of like try to find these waves to ride. And he's like, well, we invest cranky and idiosyncratic. And um, <laughs> I just love that phrasing and I love that thought. And 
I do think there's something missing about that. And, you know, one of the hard parts about it is like when you try to define your circle of competence, cranky and idiosyncratic doesn't lend itself to a surf, a circle of competence, but surfing on trends does. Uh, but I, you know, I kept like asking myself, like what, what would be the circle of competence of cranky and idiosyncratic? Like, how would you define it? Um, and it just keeps coming back to just being rational, just being rational, putting yourself in a position to be thoughtful and identify opportunity. And um, I think this whole idea of, um, I think part of why so few people end up doing this for so long is the market does change over time and there are different styles that come in and out of favor. There are always certain constants, but like every great investor to be great in a different epic has to be a little different, has to invest a little differently. And it's really hard once you pigeon yourself, pigeonhole yourself to a certain thing, to a certain style. If you're a trend surfer and markets don't trend for a long time, you know, there's nothing you could do. So part of being cranky and idiosyncratic is acknowledging that you have to be you yourself have to be different, not just your investing ideas, but you have to be different from one period to another. And I think that's pretty cool. Um, I think that's part of the joy of doing this, being able to like change and acknowledging change and evolving with with markets. For sure. Yeah, no, that's a great point. John, anything else from you that you wanted to add? We've been hogging all the airtime here. Yeah, I mean... There's obviously a lot we could, um, a lot of threads uh, to pull here. I think, um, you know, rationality, but it's not just rationality because, um, you know, the way Munger has talked about some of um, the fads that have gone on or what he perceives as fads, and I would agree, even uh, things like cryptocurrencies, Basically, um, you know, he has indicted uh, people that um, have made money by essentially, um, you know, getting um, the masses, let's say the retail investor into uh, things that are ultimately bound to to hurt them. Um, and so I think there's also a, a deep sense of um, responsibility and a moral compass that both Munger and Buffett uh, have had. Um, so it does go a bit beyond rationality, because if you just take rationality, it can be kind of, a, you know, kind of that empty suit uh, metaphor or some, you know, business school uh, graduate, um, you know, basically a high IQ person, uh, but but kind of the dangerous type. Yep. Um, and I think, um, you know, so as much as Munger and Buffett have sought to be rational, they also do have, I think, a deep a sense of responsibility and what's uh, what's right and wrong and uh, i think that's also really important yeah it's funny i thought about that a lot too because uh one i think the the last uh the last thing that that charlie munger wrote in his own name was just this past february he wrote an op-ed in the wall street journal basically uh saying that the united states should ban 
all cryptocurrencies uh, because it's a gambling contract with a basically 100% edge for the house and there's no good that comes from it. And you could argue that the, ba- the vast majority of the gains from humanity have been because we figured out how to issue stable currencies out of a sovereign entity and trying to undo that by having this ridiculous thing that's not a currency, not a commodity, and not a security falls into this weirdo gap in the regulations, and it, it just shouldn't be allowed. Um, and I think that will, I, as far as I know, I, maybe he wrote something more recently that I don't know about. He's obviously given a few more interviews as well, but it's kind of amazing that that will be the last thing that we heard uh, directly from him. But you're right, John. I mean, th- this is kind of what I was talking about earlier when I said I'll, I'll miss so much having somebody that's lived a long life that I think you can obviously say has been consistent and rational and stuck to his guns and has never, you know, been a foul of the law or anything like that. I mean, he's, he's really lived an exemplary way. And in most regards, it doesn't mean I always agree with him. We'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, but you know, one of the things that he always talks about that I think doesn't get as much attention and should is that his number one rule, he's kind of got a few rules and there's always you know, people throw them around or whatever, but number one rules was don't sell anything you wouldn't buy. And so much of what happens in investing and business, particularly as it pertains to finance, particularly as it pertains to funds, is stuff that whoever's selling it would never buy themselves. And if you just don't do that, it just, the world works so much better. Your life works so much better. And it's just such a simple, easy thing. And I think that's what's so interesting. I was thinking about it again, circling back to the crypto thing. I was listening and and reading about some of the FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried trial when he was recently convicted on all charges. And one of the things I found so fascinating listening to Matt Levine and Michael Lewis talk about it, they, they had a really interesting conversation together. I think Matt Levine's about as smart as it gets and uh, has a really good opinion on on most of this stuff. And he said, you know, what he really appreciated was that um, that Sam Bankman-Fried was not a crypto true believer. He was just sort of this ruthless shark that just was doing it because he could do it. Just like you said, I was like, okay, well, this is there and people are willing to buy it. So I'm going to sell it to him. He had no intention of buying this stuff himself, right? I mean, it's not like he was out there evangelizing for it. He was just doing it. And I think that speaks to the the dangers of allowing the casinofication, something we've talked about, the casinofication of the the market and the economy really take root, you know, and then they, of course, you hear about all these poor people that got, you know, and, and another longer thing is you don't blame the suckers at the casino, right? You, you blame the owners of the casino and you blame the regulators of the casino because those are the supposed adults in the room, the people who should know better, the people who should have a moral compass. You don't blame the people that get, you know, literally addicted to pulling the lever on a slot machine or gambling worthless tokens online or whatever the case may be. So something timely from today that certainly sticks out to me. Even beyond crypto, I think one of the more impressive ones, if I'm recalling the situation right, it wasn't just that Munger didn't like Valiant as an investment. Pretty sure he called it like immoral. Uh, I did. Oh, for sure. Yeah, he called it a sewer and said it was a deeply immoral company because it was screwing hospitals and screwing patients. And yeah. Yeah. And it's like amazing how he could instantly like cut through the crap and see it for what it was. Yeah. Um, 100%. And it's, it, you know, talk about incentives. Like he didn't have to answer to anyone. So he could actually just speak up. And, you know, unlike Musk using his kind of like carte blanche to speak whatever he wants, you know, speak up to help people. 
um, and lay bare like the realities of of what he's looking at that might be cloaked in a certain veneer. Um, well, that's what Mongrel was said, right? Was he wanted to be able to have the independence to not owe anybody anything, right? The opposite of a bought politician, the opposite of a, a business person who's got to sing the song of his bankers to stay in business, right? That's exactly what he always sought. And I think you could accuse him of a lot of things, but you certainly couldn't accuse him of not speaking his mind from what he truly believed because that would be truly insane. And that's one of the things that I also found so telling was anytime he spoke out about something that that people didn't agree with, you know, I'd be like, okay, great, you know, whatever. But when it came to crypto, basically the only response that you'd hear 99, if not 100 times out of 100, was an ad hominem attack about you know, him being some stupid old man or a senile old man or some old geezer who just doesn't get it anymore. It was truly just a a baseless response, had nothing to do with the merits of the argument and just attacking him for who he is, which is hilarious because you could never turn that around and do the opposite. I mean, it's just, I think it, it was really telling that that was the response that was almost always coming. Yeah, it is interesting. The Buffett there, there are a lot of uh, Buffett and Munger admirers who are very steeped in the crypto world. Um, that say something yeah. along the lines of a younger Buffett or Munger would be working in this space, and uh, you know, I can't prove a counterfactual. Hard to say no. whether that is or is not the case, but <laughs> uh, I can um, say that that's not the case. <laughs> yeah, I, mm. you know, I marveled at their ability to evolve with the times. So I, I wouldn't necessarily think there's a stasis at the heart of it. No, there's. Definitely yeah. no stasis, but I, I think it just crosses so many lines of things they would just never, ever consider, right? I mean, these were, I, I, it, again, like they they, they would they would preach without being paternalistic, right? I mean, they would not cross a line to say, you know, no one should ever use chewing tobacco. They never said chewing tobacco should be illegal, but when they were presented with what Munger described as possibly the greatest business he's ever seen, which was a chewing tobacco business in Tennessee, where they were the only bidder and the the price was super attractive and they would have made untold billions from it in, I don't know what year it was. I want to say it was the early 80s. They walked away because he didn't and Buffett didn't want to be the owners of a chewing tobacco company that was going to, you know, be a, a net negative for the the health of the people who used it. So you know, that to me is the line they draw, right? And that's, I think, where everybody has to draw that line themselves. But I think the argument that if they were, you know, some ridiculous thing, 40, 50, 70 years younger, they'd be neck deep in crypto. It's just patently absurd. And it's just people, it, it, it falls back into the old dictum. The easiest person to fool is yourself. And I think all those people are fooling themselves. Well, yeah, I think we've basically, uh, you know, um, hit the highlights here um i would say to anyone listening who hasn't studied munger that there's a lot out there um to pick up um as you i th i think one of you may have mentioned there's a new is it is it a new edition of uh the almanac coming out yeah that um, was just what you know when the news broke on tuesday um i went later and watched some of the clips and they they called or Becky Quick called in to CNBC, and I think she said, sort of just in passing, that there was a an up or revised edition that was set for release. I believe she said December fifth, so just next week. Again, I don't know what's in it. I don't know. Yeah, it's Stripe Press. It's an abridged edition. I just looked yeah. this up when you called it out. I didn't realize it was coming out. Yeah, it's actually. Uh, I know they've been working on it for years. So it's actually John and Patrick Collison uh, from Stripe Stripe that um, 
sought Munger's uh, counsel numerous times and I think became uh, quite close with him. And so, yeah, they they agreed to take on the, the publishing of it. So, again, I don't know what the content of it would be or what it's going to look like. But, uh, yeah, hopefully it'll be out soon. And any favorite essays you want to call out? I, I give a couple. Anything else that we missed on that? Although, you know, we got the big hits for sure. Well, Janet Lowe wrote a biography some years ago called Damn Right, you know, kind of referring to how uh, Charlie always thought he was right about things and mostly was. Um, you know, I would call that out. Oh, I, I guess I, I refer to this earlier and never circled back on it. I mean, I I think you do have to be careful. And I think Munger would agree that you never want to go down the the path of uh of hero worship and it's fun it's funny i actually uh, met some years ago probably six or seven years ago someone who literally wrote a book about about munger and, and i don't know if he'd want to be named in this regard so i won't but uh, i i asked him what his personal relationship was like and he said oh i've never met him never talked to him never want to you never want to meet your heroes and i thought that was a little Odd. I don't know that I agree with that sentiment, but I certainly agree that you want to be careful with hero worship because no one is perfect and no one uh, deserves, you know, uh, no mortal being deserves that kind of unstinting 100% credit. And again, I think Munger was as admirable as they come, but, you know, there were certainly areas that I disagreed with him or still disagree. With him. I, and in particular, you know, he continued uh, through the end, I think, to be far more optimistic about China and far more. Uh, admiring of the Chinese Communist Party than I certainly am. Uh, I always disagreed with his uh, handicapping of the odds of the relative economic and success and political stability uh, between China and India. Um, I just didn't see it that way. I mean, it is kind of crazy, too. I mean, he he reversed course big time, again, to his credit, um, in Alibaba, right? I mean, he owned uh, a pretty massive slug of that at the Daily Journal. And uh, I have never done the math as to what the returns or the loss might have looked like. I don't know if he made or lost money on there on that, but uh, he certainly reversed course, having bought more and then selling it below where he bought the most recent uh, chunks of it. So, you know, again, that willingness to admit mistakes, willingness to be flexible of mind is absolutely key. And so, um, yeah. And as to your question, Elliot, other stuff that I would call out, um, you know, he, he did give tons of talks and lectures and there's um, a lot of great stuff out there. If you, if you spend a few minutes on the internet, you'll go down a rabbit hole uh, pretty quickly. Steve Friedman at Santangelo's review put out a great email the other day. I think it was yesterday with some of the lesser known uh, speeches and articles, all of which I had read before, but it, maybe a few of them I'd kind of forgotten about or hadn't seen in years. I don't think all of the ones that he sent are actually in Port Charlie's Almanac. So maybe those will be updated. I don't know, but yeah, I mean, just certainly, you know, create your own anthology on the internet or buy Poor Charlie's Almanac because that really does cover, you know, 90 or 99.9% 9 of what's out there. Absolutely. Well said. That's perfect. All of these things worth reading, worth learning from. It's cool to watch him talk to. Um, see, the, definitely some of the speeches are on YouTube as well. Um, and I, I find the delivery impressive. Like he could kind of build a story really well oh, you know what like i'm actually you... sorry i didn't mean to interrupt but i actually just pulled it up so yes yeah, straight press looks like you can pre-order it um now the the new edition of port charlie's almanac and it's way cheaper which is super awesome because the old one was pretty expensive this one it looks like is only 
$22 and change on Barnes and Noble, Amazon directly from them. And it does list December 5th. So next week is the, uh, as the release date. So that's exciting. Good holiday gift for anyone you know as well. 100%. Yeah, no doubt. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much. Um, you know, this was an obligatory episode for us. Uh, I think one uh, worth doing. And um, yeah, it's the end of an era. You know, you wonder how, um, you know, we go from here. Um, and and obviously Buffett's still around, but, uh, you know, the whole... Omaha experience may change a little bit uh, as well. We'll we'll just have yeah. to see. No, for sure, it's going to change a hundred percent. I mean, I I will always have great memories of the the laughs and the lesson learned from from those guys in Omaha together up there. It was something to see for sure. Well, thank you all for listening. Um, great to have you with us, and uh, we'll talk uh, soon. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.